0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans 15, 1 through 13. Would you please stand with me as we read the word of God together? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the gentiles in him will all the gentiles will the gentiles hope may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of God.
1: Amen, thank you Christy. As I said in first service, that's I think how Paul wanted it read. Bless you dear. (laughs) That's how I would want it read, I'll tell you. (laughs) Amen. Hey, listen, this time of year is uh, important um, member uh, activities are happening in the month of November that's coming up, and I want you to mark on your calendar, Sunday night, November the 15th, we have a members meeting. If you're a member, you just need to be here. Uh, Some of you don't come because you think, well, church is fine, everything's going well. Please don't be one of those people that only shows up at bad members meetings. Uh, Come when it's good and healthy, and we have some important things to talk about for next year, not the least of which is we're doing some research on some property for our Fishers Campus. We want to give you some updates on that. There will also be some important information distributed uh, via the e-news and online uh, regarding our uh, next year's budget and some priorities for next year. Uh, There's also some Q&A times, if you have questions about the budget, our staff would be more than happy to walk you through some things, and those times, I think there's six of them or so over the next couple weeks. All that will be online, we'll have some printed copies for you next week, but if you get the e-news, which you should, um, you'll find all the information there. So Mark, November 15th for a members meeting, all right? Romans 15, so grateful I get to preach this text to you today. Let's pray. Father, help us now, because we are a people whose hearts are set on self-centeredness and division. We are easily offended and we think small issues should be bigger than what they are and we need grace and maturity to know how to think when we're offended and when people are different in terms of their opinions than ours, how to be able to get along and how to make the gospel seen as glorious and beautiful. So help us as a church to grow in the beauty of Romans 15. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 9th, or 29th rather, 1972, over 100 people died in a tragic plane accident in the Florida Everglades. At the time, it was the worst disaster in aviation in our nation's history. But what made the crash tragic was not just the fact that people died, it was the cause that was tragic. When the investigators pieced the airplane together, they discovered that virtually nothing was wrong with the aircraft except for a single blinking green light. An indicator light regarding the extension of the landing gear. When the landing gear would extend and lock, the light would illuminate. And as the pilots, all three of them, were approaching the landing, they deployed the landing gear, and it was in fact deployed and locked, but the blinking indicator light wasn't working. They became so focused on the blinking or the lack of blinking in that indicator light that they failed to remember that the autopilot was deactivated, and slowly over time they didn't realize that the plane was losing altitude, and by the time they realized that it, it was too late, the plane crashed, and 100 people lost their lives, all because in the midst of a hurried environment, the pilots lost the bigger picture for a much smaller issue. I find that to be tragic, not just in regards to an airplane crash, but some of you have seen churches crash. You've seen marriages crash. If I were to take a poll amongst us as to how many of you witnessed a church split or saw a small group break apart or saw friends divide over a particular issue, it would be a vast majority of us. Some of you are still recovering, in fact, from that very experience where a minor issue was focused on to such an extent that the bigger issues in life were neglected. I mean, for that matter, have you ever had an argument with a friend or maybe a spouse and then a week later thought, why in the world did we argue about that? I mean, that was right, but why did we argue? (laughs) Why did we argue about it? It just seems so small in comparison to the, the bigger picture. The fact of the matter is that human history and church history is filled with all kinds of conflicts in this regard, tensions and divisions that frankly could have and should have been avoided. Today we're back in Romans. And we're talking about the weak, the strong, and what we learned in Romans 14 are called stumbling blocks. Paul's aim in these chapters, 14 and 15, is to try and help a church, a diverse church, get along. A church that had people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different ethnicities. How do they love each other, and how do they keep the bigger picture of the gospel in view? What's on the line in Romans 14 and 15 is whether or not the gospel is big enough and powerful enough to unite Jews and Gentiles together. And for our church, that question sounds like this. Is the gospel big enough, still big enough, to unite all of us despite our differences, despite where we come from, despite our preferences, despite our histories? It's an important question, is the gospel big enough? Now, it's been a while since we've been in Romans. Let me give you a a brief summary of where we've been. The problem in Romans 14 and 15 was likely due to Jewish converts who'd come to faith in Christ, but they were having a difficulty leaving behind some of their traditions related to the Old Testament covenant, things related to what kind of meat they should eat, whether or not they should drink wine, and, the celebration of certain days. What was happening is that pride was dividing the church as non-meat-eaters were judging those who were eating meat. How can they eat that meat? And the meat-eaters were disdaining the non-eat-meaters as old-fashioned and backwards. Two principles emerged from Romans 14. First, verses 1 to 12, we are to welcome one another despite our differences. So, The posture of a believer's life is open arms. I welcome you, I love you, you're a brother, a sister in Christ. And the second principle found in verses 13 to 23 is that we are to be considerate of one another in our preferences. And this is mostly geared towards those who have more liberty in what they do. In other words, you can't just do what you do without concern for how it affects other people. You can't just have your freedoms without thinking about the impact on people around you. What Paul did is he pointed to both groups of people, to the strong and to the weak, to the meat eaters and the non-eat meaters, he pointed to both of them towards lower level spiritual values or more foundational principles. He points them to their conscience, having the right response to who God is inside of their souls. He, he points them to not judge each other. He points them to not putting pressure on the weak brother. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of them. In other words, those who have more freedom ought to at times be willing to restrict their freedom in love for someone else because at the end of the day, their freedom is an ultimate. Their love for that person, and as we'll see, their love for the gospel is At the heart of what is happening in Romans 14 is a very important concept that I called theological and ethical triage. The idea is not just knowing what you know, but knowing in what order of importance it is. I showed you a chart a few months ago, or a month or so ago, regarding absolutes, convictions, and preferences. And the key is understanding what's an absolute and what's a preference. An absolute is something that defines the central reality of what Christianity is. A preference doesn't define Christianity. Legalism is taking a preference and making it an absolute. Liberalism is taking an absolute and making it a preference. A few days ago I received an email from one of our missionaries who sent me this chart, which I think actually does an even better job. It's a little more robust. The center is what are the things that are essential for salvation? Then what are the things that characterize historical Christianity? and then characterize traditional orthodoxy, and then denominational orthodoxy. What are things that are important, but not essential? What are things that are just not important, and then what are things that are just pure speculation? The key is what issue you have and where you put it in terms of that target. You see, understanding these things helps us with our definition of maturity. I trust you know that a mature person is not just someone who knows a lot. It's a person who knows what's actually really important. By the way, a mature person is also someone who's easily edified. Immature people can only be edified by particular things. For instance, they gotta have a particular person speaking in a particular way, or a particular song, or a particular style, or a particular thing, and if you're really narrow in terms of what you can be edified with, you're probably immature. I find that the more mature a person is, the more widely they can be blessed and encouraged. They don't care if the young guy gets up and preaches and doesn't do a great job or if his outline isn't clear. They hear the word of God and they just love it. They can be blessed with anyone. And the beautiful thing is, is that a mature person knows not only what they know, but they also have worked through what is the order of the importance. That's hard work, and yet it's really important work. Because the labor to bring the body together It's not only worth the effort because of love and also the gospel, but sometimes it's even worth limiting your own freedom because you love something more, namely the brother, namely the church, or namely the gospel. What Paul does now in Romans 15 is he's bringing this section to a close. He's gonna talk about the idea of harmony. And how do we live in harmony together? He's, he's summarizing the themes of Romans 14, now in chapter 15, with the idea that we're coming to close here in Romans 16. So we've begun our descent in the book of Romans, and he's going to connect this idea of welcoming one another with the beauty of the gospel, which really is the theme of Romans in particular. So four things, the acts of harmony, the source of harmony, the goal of harmony, and the plan of harmony. Let's look at each of these. First, the acts of harmony, verses one and two. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Notice that Paul places himself in the category of the strong. He places himself in the category of the meat eaters. And yet, he puts the onus on the strong. So he's gonna speak to the strong, those who have more freedom, because they may have more freedom, but they can't have more freedom in regards to everything that they do without concern for other people. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Paul acknowledges that the weak has they have a failing, they have a weakness. And then he says, and to not please ourselves. So the strong brother has a twofold obligation. In the first case, the strong are to bear with the failings of the weak. What does that mean? The word bear with means more than just tolerate. It means to really help one another, to come alongside each other, to, to encourage one another, to kind of bear the load. In other words, someone else's weakness is something that you come along and you don't roll your eyes over it, you don't get disgusted about it, you don't write somebody off, but you come along and think, how can I help this person? How can I help, how can I have compassion for them? As I used to say in my last church, we have to love them more than we hate where they're at. You've got to come alongside. How do you help them? Interestingly, Paul uses the same word in Galatians 6.2, a text that Pastor Andrew is going to preach on in November, on bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The word is also used in Matthew 8.17, where it says that Jesus bore our diseases. So the idea is, Someone's got a preference and it seems a little out there and you come in contact with them. They're part of your small group. They got a little hang-up with something. How do you treat them? You just kind of write them off? Avoid them? Talk to them with disdain? Paul says we are to bear with the failings of the weak. We're to do more than just tolerate. We're to actually help them. And then secondly, we're not only to do that, but also we're to do it in a way so as not to please ourselves. Think about it self centeredness is often the root of division and disunity. Whether it's a friendship, a marriage, a small group, a staff, or an entire church, a lack of concern for others is often at the heart of division and always contrary to the gospel. So therefore, the command here, and the way that the brother is supposed to act, is he can't write off his weaker brother's challenges. So in order for the church to be a place of harmony, we have to value something more than our little pet issue. We have to value what it means to be the church, and for what it means for you to be connected in your life to someone else. You don't have the right to use your rights without concern for anyone else. You have to be concerned about your brother's needs and what's going on inside of his soul, and you can't just live your life without any concern for people who are around you. See, part of the challenge is the culture in which we live elevates the idea of my individual rights, elevates the idea that what really matters and what I'm entitled to is to do whatever I want, say whatever I want, and then you combine that with a general, across the board in evangelicalism, a low view of the local church where a church is just a place that you come to, it's the place you come and get stuff, and you get spiritual resources, then you go back out, and what you have is a ripe environment for people to come into church week after week, have self-centered mindsets, self-centered attitudes, then you add a wicked heart to all that equation, it's no wonder there's challenges, especially in our culture. One of the reasons why I think church membership is important is because it acknowledges That my relationship with Christ is not just about my personal relationship with Christ. It lays a stake in the ground and it says my Christianity isn't just about me. There is a people to whom I belong. That a church is not just a place that I go to. It's a people that I've identified with. Being the church means that I'm fundamentally concerned about others. You see... I think that God puts people in our puts people in our lives because He wants to work out this bearing with one another. There are people in your small group, perchance, that you don't get along really well with. And you know what? I think they're there by divine design. I think God placed them there. And what'll happen? You leave your small group, you go to another, guess what? Those folks are gonna show up. <laughs> they're not gonna stalk you, it's just somebody else with a different skin, different attitude, different heart. You're like, whoa, that dude found us, right? I mean, I I left one church and came to another, and a couple people followed me in your bodies, right? And so, like, they showed up, right? And I think what God does is he brings people into our lives because he wants us to learn something, and it's this, that part of having a relationship with Christ means that we get the privilege of bearing with one another's weaknesses, We get the privilege of helping one another, of being reminded that at the end of the day, my relationship with Christ is not just all about me, my needs, my family, my issues, my singleness, my spiritual struggles, me, 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 that at the end of the day, part of the beauty of Christianity is you get to be in a group and hear someone say something and go, ugh, and you choose to love them. And you help them grow. And you help them in their walk with Christ. Now verse two counterbalances this focus on the weaker brother because verse two says, let each of us, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In other words, the whole world doesn't revolve around the weaker brother. So there comes a point in time when that weaker brother needs to grow up. And so you bear with them and you encourage them, but the goal is not just to please them, but to please them so he could then grow up. That's the point. There's some of you who would be dangerous in this category of making your life's profession the weaker brother, always bringing up this single pet issue, the single pet issue, the single pet issue. No matter what you're talking about, small groups, it always comes back to this issue over and over and over. And eventually, people, while they'll bear with you, eventually, brother or sister, you just need to get over that issue. You need to grow up. That's the point. That the stronger brother's not allowed to run roughshod over weaker brothers, but weaker brothers aren't allowed to always bring up this issue and hold everyone back forever. The point is this, both stronger and weaker brothers can be very self-centered, but in different ways. So let me ask you some questions. Does this tone and heart fit with how you think about relationships within the body of Christ and even within our church? Do you think this way, that you've come to a people today Have you made your pet preferential issue something that is more important than it should be? I mean, you may know where it falls on the theological triage scale, but on the emotional scale, it's like right in the middle. Are you dismissive of people who are struggling with their petty issues or those who you think are kind of old school? Do you have no toleration for that? You just kind of write them off? I'm not talking about that. Do you have any patience for people who are working through the stuff that maybe ticked you off five, 10 years ago? Do you have any friends who hold different convictions than you? Do you have any awkward moments where, now, I know you see this this way, and I see this this way, I still love you, but let's, do you have anyone who's like that? Or are all your friends, do they all think like you, talk like you, act like you, walk like you? If that's your group, run. Because <laughs> that's a cult, right? <laughs> you need people who are different in order to shave off the rough edges. Part of the beauty of the, body of, the Christ, of the body of Christ is that there is a harmony that's created. I think Paul uses the word on purpose. Not just unity, but harmony. Two tones that are not the same that combine make something beautiful happen. That's the image of the church. The church is messy, I get it, and yet it's a beautiful mess. That's the acts of harmony. Here's the source. So, why in the world would people spend all the effort and energy to try and make relationships work? Why would Jews and Gentiles worship together? Why not just segregate them? They're so different. Well, let's see what the text says. Here's the source For Christ did not please himself. Usually when you see the word for in the Bible, it's giving you a reason for what was just said. So for Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So there's gonna be two sources. The first source is the work of Christ. So when a person has a relationship with Jesus, it changes everything, including how they see these issues. So you can't do theological triage well unless you understand the beauty of atonement through Christ. He says, for Christ did not please himself, and then he quotes Psalm 69, a classic text on the suffering of the Messiah, and he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, Jesus took our sin, which was a reproach to God. So Jesus took the reproach, the offense, that was directed to God because of our sinfulness. And the beautiful reality of what comes from that is that now these people who understand atonement like this, they see the world differently. So how do you get along with people who are different than you? How do you deal with the awkwardness of feeling like I'm being judged? Or how do you feel like the awkwardness of I don't know how to deal with this? You are reminded that of all the things you've had to bear, it's nothing like Christ bore for you. And so when you get in your car and you're complaining about somebody and how they acted or what happened, maybe even this morning, you just remember all of the complaints levied against you that Jesus wiped clean because of the gift of his body on that cross for you. It is only because of the beauty of Christ that people can even get along together. And I think God intended the church to be a, a miraculous place where People platform the gospel by how they get along together. I mean, it's, it's a miracle that any two sinful human beings could interact together and have meaningful conversation and love one another over the long haul. The, some of you have been married 50 plus years. You know, that's a miracle because you're both wicked and the, any, any way that those two people could make that work is unbelievable. You go on a two hour family car trip you, why are you laughing? I mean, you're already there, right? <laughs> If you arrive and everyone's enjoyed the ride, it's been a great moment, you talked, and it's just a sweet time, the fellowship, you get out of the car, you say, praise God from whom all blessings flow, because that's a miracle, right? You go to a restaurant today, and you as a family just sit around and talk and enjoy one another and have great conversation, invariably, eventually someone's gonna come up to you and just say, oh, it's so good to see a family. Why? Because it's so unusual. And you know why it's unusual? Because from the depth of our core of who we are, sinful human beings do not like to have other people in their life make things difficult for them, they want it their way and it's only by the miraculous power of the cross that anybody who names the name of Jesus is able to get along with anybody else. By the way, if you're not a Christian, this might explain why relationships are difficult. Friendships, marriage, relationships, they don't work when you're at the center of the universe. And you may be here today, and you've blown up relationship after relationship after relationship. You may be here today trying to figure it out. And while Christians aren't perfect, I can tell you one thing for sure, that without a core commitment to Christ, you're going to keep blowing up relationships. Because at the end of the day, the problem is you keep bringing you to the relationships. And until God changes you at the heart level, by you repenting of your sins and saying, Jesus, I'm done with me, there's no hope. That's why the Bible says that you're only to marry in the Lord because two people who don't have the same relationship with Christ, they can't get married, they can't date. Flirt to convert, wrong. It's a bad idea. At the core of who we are is this commitment to who and what Christ is and that core reality, it changes everything. At least it's supposed to. Not only does that change everything, but the scriptures do as well. Look at the second thing, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So here's the two resources number one, you look at Christ, that's the first source. Number two, you look at the scriptures. The Bible fuels harmony in Christ's church. The Bible provides instructions for both Jews and gentiles. In this case, Paul is even referencing the Old Testament, even though some of those laws had been changed. He doesn't negate the value of the Bible. He says that scriptures provide encouragement, and because of that encouragement, we have hope. It provides instruction for us so that through endurance and through the encouragement there can be hope. What kind of hope? The hope is that in the midst of people who are very different that they can love one another despite their difference of preferences. The beautiful thing is if you're here today and you had a fractured marriage or a broken relationship or your small group is somewhat dysfunctional because of all these issues, you know what the solution is? The solution is that all of you in that group and in that marriage remember the beauty of the hope that comes from the scriptures that you're not the center of the universe, Jesus is, and because he bore our reproach, there's actually hope for us when he becomes the center and when the glory of God becomes our ultimate aim. So where does harmony come from in the body of Christ? It comes from understanding the person of Christ and it comes from understanding and knowing the word of Christ. Remove a Christ focus and there's no example to follow. You'll just go back to, what's in my interest? And when that happens, that leads to problems. Or remove the scriptures from the mix and you have no instruction, no objective truth. So you experience this. you, you walked away from scripture reading for a week, two weeks, three weeks. It's amazing how much your own narrative begins to take control. And without the regular input of the Bible, you're, you'll think things that are absolutely false are absolutely true. You'll say things that you'll regret for the rest of your life because your life and your mind have been informed by another scripture, and it's your scripture, and that's the wrong scripture. So be warned. Be warned. Don't take your eyes off Christ. Don't stop immersing yourself in the word because without it, there is no hope for harmony. Third, what's the goal of harmony? Paul picks this up in verses five and six. It's a prayer. It's beautiful. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Now notice, he just said that endurance and encouragement are through the scriptures, and now he says, may the God of encouragement and the God of endurance grant you to live in such harmony. So the idea is this, that while we have the the resource coming from the word, it's also something that God must give, so they are miraculous gifts. If any group of people, be they two or four thousand, are able to get along, able to love one another, able to consider each other as more important than themselves, it is nothing short of a miracle. Verse six then sets the context. So worship context, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice what he's driving towards. He's not driving towards unity for unity's sake. No, no, no. The goal is unity and harmony in order so that together with one voice they can do what they're ultimately created for and that is to glorify God and give him glory. That's what the end game is. And that's the difference. That people who are trying to live together in the context of a church, if your ultimate aim is not the glory of God and your ultimate aim is your glory, that's where division comes from. And so what do you need to remind yourself in the midst of these divisions, in the midst of these issues? Remind yourself what's really important. Paul is laboring for a kind of worship that comes as people from all walks of life come together and, with their collective voice, give honor and glory to God. Charles Spurgeon, in 1863, in a sermon called The Power of Prayer and the Pleasure of Praise, says this United praise is like music in concert. The sound of one instrument is exceedingly sweet, but when hundreds of instruments, both wind and stringed, are combined, when the orchestra, then the orchestra sends forth a noble volume of harmony. The praise of one Christian is accepted before God like a grain of incense, but the praise of many is like a censer full of frankincense smoking up before the Lord. Combined praise is an appreciation of heaven. For in that general assembly they all, together with one heart and one voice, praise the Lord. Ten thousand thousand are their tongues, but all their joys are one. It's the beauty of what heaven is going to be. And... Sunday morning is supposed to be a little taste of that and your small group is supposed to be a taste of that and you're hanging out with another brother, comes from a different walk of life or a different background or a different socioeconomic status or a different racial category. All those things are designed to say something marvelous, that there's something bigger than humanity here. It is the glory of God. We exist for that beautiful glory. So what's the goal? The goal is the beauty of God, that's the goal. And finally, so what's the plan? Verse seven, the final aspect of harmony in the body, Paul now connects to the bigger picture plan of what God is doing in the gospel. So as Paul closes this section in Romans 15, he's actually closing it to connect it to the broader theme of the entire book of Romans, which is the Gospel that unites Jews and Gentiles. Remember, Romans chapter one. This is the the heartbeat of what Romans, the whole book is about. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. See that? The point is not just the Gospel, but the Gospel that unites Jew and Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So one of the end games in the Gospel is not just to save sinners, it's to take sinners and unite them from every walk of life. That's the goal, from different backgrounds, from different baggages that they have from their past, from different perspectives. The kind of righteousness that Paul has in mind is the kind that crosses racial and ethnic divides and it makes them one. That's why diversity is worth pleading for and praying for and working towards because there's something beautiful that says something amazing about God when people from all walks of life worship together, that we're not the same, but we have one voice and we worship God in spirit and in truth. That's why Paul says, verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Isn't that beautiful? And in like nine minutes, you're gonna be able to apply this verse. You're gonna walk out, and you get to welcome each other. Or you can be self-centered, and you're like, let's leave, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go get lunch. Let's go get our kids. Or you walk through the atrium, the hallway area, and you're looking for your friends. Like, where's my friends? Where's my friends? <laughs> Where's my friends? Right? And you see some guy, and you're like, hi. You know, and you kind of walking around like an insecure little junior hire, which you are. You just put adult clothes on, it, and you're walking around, and, and, and you don't think, I'm, I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm going to go talk to this brother I don't know and say, hey, what's your name? How long have you been here? Some of you, when Jake gave the different way to greet one another and go talk to somebody, some of you were like, <laughs> oh, and you did it, and hopefully it worked well because you stayed, you didn't leave, right? You didn't run out. Paul says, welcome one another. We belong to Christ, and we need to act like that. Given all that Paul says here, I gotta, I gotta think that the church at Rome was on the brink of, of collapse, some kind of substantial division, And I wonder if he was fearful that this church in the capital city, if it collapsed under the weight of divisiveness and differences, what would happen to the spread of Christianity? And what Paul is doing here is he's he's leaning in and he's trying to bring this body together. Some of you are still recovering from a church that collapsed. Or maybe you watched a marriage collapse and you had a front seat. And for most of your life, you've struggled. Like, I don't get it. How can two people who follow Jesus, like the whole thing just... There are categories for that, and grace can cover that, but some of you have taken a long time to try and work through that. You saw a church, and it just imploded, and it it affected you for a long time. And I I want to remind you that the next time that some divisive issue comes up, you start getting in someone else's grill, sometimes friction starts to happen, just remind you that where that can go can lead to a lifetime of damage in people around you. So you better be sure that your issue is worth all that. What Paul does in verses eight to 13 is he connects it back to the gospel. Because what can happen? You can gut the gospel. You can diminish the beauty of what Jesus paid for. And you can destroy something that God intended to be glorious and beautiful by your own selfishness. Verse eight, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that means the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. What promises? The promises that God's gonna reach the world. And then verse nine, he Clarifies it and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. In other words, God's plan for Israel was never just about Israel. It always included a plan to reach the Gentiles. And so What Paul reminds them here is that Christ became a servant to the Jews in order to reach the Gentiles, that God's plan is to unite Jews and Gentiles under the banner of the gospel, and then to root that deeply in the scriptures. He quotes four glorious texts. The first one in verse 9 from Psalm 18, therefore I will praise your name among the Gentiles and sing to your name. It's a psalm of David, where David asks the Lord, play me like an instrument that I could praise your name to the world. That's what David wanted. He wanted the nations to know the beauty of God. And then verse 10, again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This comes out of De- Deuteronomy 32, and Moses is celebrating the victory over Pharaoh. He knows that the story about Pharaoh is not just about Pharaoh, it's not just about Israel, it's about all of the world knowing that God is greater than Pharaoh and these silly gods in Egypt, and Moses wants the fame of God's name to go all over the planet, which is why he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him from Psalm 117, where the psalmist calls upon Gentiles to lift their voices in worship. And then the last one in verse 12, he quotes Isaiah 11, a very famous text about this shoot coming up from a stump. And he says, the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. See what he's doing? Where will the harmony for Jews and Gentiles come from? How will they live together and be together in unity? It'll come as they both look to Christ. It'll come as they... See the beauty of who and what Jesus is. And so that means this morning you could be here in the middle of huge relationship loss and brokenness. And what I have to offer you today is the person and work of Jesus who won't just fix your relationship. Some of those may never fully get fixed, but what he can fix is your heart so that what's happened in the past actually has hope of never happening again. Because the real issue is not just the marriage, the relationship, the challenges. The real issue is the waywardness of a self-centered heart that quickly takes over and says no, it's gonna be my way and that only is conquered by Christ taking our reproach and saying let me show you a different way. And for those of you who know Christ, I wanna remind you that God has a big plan, a big plan of mercy and we're called to be considerate and to welcome one another because we see the big picture. And so my question to you this morning would simply be, in your relationships, if you're married, in your marriage, if you're single, in your friends that you have, in your small group, in your Sunday school class, in this church, do you have a big view of mercy? Do you have a big view of the gospel? Do you see how it all connects into God's plan to bring us together? And can you either limit your freedoms because of your love for that plan or get over your petty issues in love of that that plan? Can you have a heart like what Paul is angling for here, that if Christ has so welcomed us, should we not also welcome one another? That's the question. And the answer is, of course we should. For God's glory, we should. For Christ's sake, we should. For the sake of the gospel, we should. And therefore, I will embrace my brother and sister in Christ despite our differences, because at the end of the day, this is not about me, it's not about you, it's not about our church, it's about the beauty of Christ being displayed over all the earth. And that's a treasure worth holding, elevating, and protecting. Even if it means I'm not the center of it. Paul ends, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What hope? The hope that people from different walks of life can actually get along and love each other for the long haul because they treasure Jesus. That's the hope. And God can do it. He already has. Through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize today the reality of our own sinfulness, the ways in which it is stunningly easy to take our little things and make them so big. And so would you now forgive us for the ways in which we have made our issues the center of everything, and at times, even at great cost of the gospel or your name just ran roughshod over people or what it even means to be a Christian. Would you help us to be a people who are filled with hope because of our confidence in Christ? Thank you that you bore our sins And if you've so welcomed us, help us to welcome one another. Church, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we just want to take a moment as we close to give you some time, about a minute, just to ask the Lord, God, where does this apply in my life? Where do I need to be more gracious? So I'm going to give you about a minute, just for a time of silent prayer. When you hear the music, you can be dismissed. There'll be people up here at the front who'd love to pray with you. If you have a question or a burden, they're here. You don't need to leave can be prayed for. But just for a moment, let's be silent before the Lord as we ask him, what are you saying today, Lord?